Hey, well, welcome. It's uh, great to be with you. My name's Pastor Bob, and we're here, as was said earlier, at the Rosemont Inn. I'm really glad in this Christmas season that there was room in the inn for us. So um, I'm a dad, so I have to go there. We're going to look at one of the verses that is maybe the most cherished and one of the most well-known verses about Jesus's birth this morning. And it says this, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel. And Emmanuel is a special name for Jesus because it means God with us. And, and that is a promise, not only to um, that was given in the time that Jesus lived, but it's a promise for us as well. But this was something that was written, not just in Matthew chapter one, but 700 plus years before that, this is a prophecy from Isaiah. And so what I wanted to do this morning was really to tell a little known story about that prophecy and what it meant then and what it meant in the future and what it means for us today as well. And so I'm going to start with Isaiah chapter 7 verse 1. It says, When Ahaz son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezim of Aram and Pekah son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. And so th these are verses that talk about what's going on at this time in Israel's history. Um, th there was a civil war in Israel over a hundred years before this that separated the nation into two parts, the Northern Kingdom called Israel and the Southern Kingdom called Judah. In fact, the reason we call Jews, Jews today is a shortened version of that Southern Kingdom's name, Judah. And so that, that had happened over a hundred years before but the northern kingdom of Israel and this other kingdom, Aram, which is in modern-day Syria, they teamed up together to, to fight against the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was actually in what is modern-day Iraq, and as you can see on the map, was uh, spreading and growing in influence. It occupied about the purple area that it shows uh, on the screen right now at this time, 735 B.C., so Assyria, you need to understand, this is a time in history that was very brutal. I mean, people killed, enslaved, thought nothing of it, con countries conquering other nations. It, it was really, really bad. But of all the nations that we have studied archaeologically and otherwise in the ancient world, the most brutal one was Assyria. If I explained and told you some of the things they did, this would be an R-rated sermon. They were bad. And so these other nations, Aram and northern Israel, actually they teamed up with Egypt as well, and they made an alliance and said, we're going to stop Assyria, and we're going we're gonna to team up together and fight them. Judah, this little tiny nation here, they said, you know what? You guys were never our friends. Northern Israel had invaded Judah. Aram had invaded Judah. Egypt had invaded Judah. And, and so they said, we're going to sit this one out and, and we're not going to join you to attack Assyria. Well, this didn't go over very well. And these other nations said, if you're not with us, you're against us. And so before attacking Assyria, they went down to conquer Judah. And that's where our story picks up. And that is what is going on right now. The city of Jerusalem is under siege by um, these two nations. And either one of those nations could have defeated Israel, uh, Judah, but, but both of them together was a formidable force. Verse 2 of Isaiah 7 says, Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. Again, Ephraim is another name for the northern kingdom of Israel. 
So the hearts of Ahaz in the southern kingdom of Israel and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. And so they were scared. And rightly so. These were much bigger, much more prosperous nations than the little nation of Judah. And they're both there at their doorstep trying to kill them and conquer this last city that's standing in the country. Verse 3, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. And the, the name Shear Jashub, back then they didn't name people names because they sounded cool. You know, they didn't say like, Ooh, Shear Jashub, that just rolls off the tongue. They, they, they named people based on what it meant. And Shear Jashub means a small remnant will remain or will return. That's not a good name for this situation because it's really prophetic that, that Isaiah is saying, and God said through Isaiah, name your son this because most of Israel, most of southern Judah is going to be destroyed. It's going to be taken off as slaves. It's going to be, be defeated. But there will be a small remnant that survives. And, and then they go to see Ahaz and he's in, at the aqueduct. So when you're under siege, there's two things you need. You need food and you need water. And so he's inspecting to make sure that they have a sufficient water supply while they're under this siege. So that's where Isaiah meets him. Verse 4, say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Keep calm. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Remaliah. So God is, to me, it's kind of like he's talking trash. You know, and he's calling these nations that, that seem to be really, really powerful to the king of Judah, Ahaz. He's saying, ah, they're just like smoldering sticks of firewood. So at one point, they were a little problem because they were a stick on fire. But now they're, they're basically done. Their influence and power is over. They just don't know it yet. And that's what God tells him just to try to encourage Ahaz that he can trust him. And I'm just going to skip ahead a little bit to the end of verse 9. And that's where he says, If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And so this is God's word to Ahaz. He's saying, you know what? You need to trust me because this is a precarious time. This is a very dangerous time. If you don't trust me now, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you're not going to survive this. You're not going to stand and he continues on in verse 10, and he says this. He says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask for a sign. I will not put the Lord to the test. So a couple things going on here. First of all, God does not expect us to believe him without proof. I think irrational, un un illogical blind faith is nothing that God's word speaks of or encourages I, th I think when God wants us to trust him he gives us good reason to trust him the problem is though many times we are looking for like indisputable uh, uh, totally uh, undeniable evidence when what God actually does give to us and when the standard for almost any decision in our life is uh, evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. 
fact, even court cases today, if you were to ask uh, a jury to find someone guilty beyond any shadow of a doubt, they would almost never, maybe never find anyone guilty because, well, there's DNA evidence, but it could have been planted. And the, there were five witnesses, but they could have all lied. And, and so this idea of, of having evidence beyond a shadow of a doubt is really not something that we operate by in the real world. And yet many people expect this from God. And they, they say, well, I, I'm only going to believe God if it, beyond a shadow of a doubt, he proves that he is for me or that he proves that he is real or that he proves that his word is true. And, and that's really inconsistent because that's not the standard we have for any other kind of truth. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. And so here, God is talking to Ahaz and he's saying, I want you to trust me, but I want, I want to give you some, some evidence. I, I, I want to give you a sign. So why don't you, why don't you tell me whatever sign it is, I, I'll do it. In fact, his son, Hezekiah, God does the same thing with him. And Hezekiah says, well, you know, it's easy for the sun to go, you know, in the right direction and, and um, you know, on a sundial and for it to move forward. He says, I want the sun to move backwards. And God did that for Hezekiah to prove to Hezekiah, you can trust me, the sun. And he made the sun go backwards across the sky. And, and so here he's saying to Ahaz, anything, any sign you want, you pick it and I will do it for you. But Ahaz's response sounds super godly, right? This sounds so like, this is the Sunday school answer. I'm not going to test God. And that would have been a great answer if he was saying, I'm not going to test God because I trust and believe God already for everything he's done to Israel and all the prophecies that have been fulfilled so far. I believe and trust God. But that's not why he said, I won't put the Lord to the test. He says this because he has no plan on obeying God, no matter what sign God gives. Ahaz has already made up his mind that he is going to save himself. And his plan is to take all the treasure of God out of the temple and send it to the king of Assyria and pay the king of Assyria to come and rescue him from Aram and from northern Israel. And he thinks that this is going to solve his problem. And in the short term, it does solve his problem. But in the long term, the king of Assyria doesn't just come for Aram, doesn't just come for northern Israel. But when he's done with them, he comes for Ahaz as well. And this is what happens so often in our lives when we try to have other people and other things rescue us. We find that, yeah, at first they do rescue, they do make things easier, but then in the end, they enslave us, just like the king of Assyria did. And so that's what he had in mind. And I think I have a little map that shows, well, oh yeah, this is a, a tablet. This is going about reasonable proof. So there's these things in the Bible that, that God's word says. A lot of times people are like, well, that's a nice story. But how do we know that happened? And, and this is an Akkadian tablet taken from Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. It is now in the British Museum. And it explains that Ahaz did exactly what Isaiah said he did. And, and it backs up the biblical account that Ahaz took treasure, sent it to the king of Assyria, and after that, the Assyrian king attacked Aram and attacked northern Israel. 
And so again, God, God doesn't give us beyond a shadow of a doubt evidence that his word is true. But I think time after time and place after place, he, he makes us understand that his word is true beyond a reasonable doubt. And so that's what that tablet says. And um, I'll continue to read these verses of what God's prophecy is. Verse 13, then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You're not going to ask for a sign. I'll give you one for free. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey. And when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, for before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. And that is exactly what happened. There is a child who was born, I, I believe, because of what he says in chapter 8 of Isaiah, that this is a child of, of Isaiah's wife who was born. And before that boy is old enough to know right from wrong, two, maybe three years after this prophecy is given, the two nations that are attacking Israel, Judah, southern Judah right now, are completely destroyed. In fact, we have a map here. It shows Assyria is there, and then Assyria conquers all of this green area, Aram and the northern kingdom of, Jude, of, of Israel as well. But then they don't stop there. They continue on, and then they continue to conquer, and they conquer all the way down to Egypt, the largest empire in that region of the world up until that point in history. And if you look at this map, it's interesting because there's just this little tiny country, Judah, that is the only thing that isn't conquered of that huge swath of territory. And, and you just wonder, like, like, is that real? I mean, that's the Bible story. But, but did that really happen? And, and that's where this archaeological evidence is really amazing. The Taylor Prism is a recording, again, in the Akkadian script of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, and this is their records about what happened. And he says that, yes, he conquered Aram. He conquered northern Israel. He conquered all of these other nations around. But when it came to Judah, he said, I shut up Hezekiah in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage and then came home, which means he never conquered Judah. And that was the only nation. And so it's interesting how so often people over the, the centuries have looked at God's word and said, oh, that's just a story. That can't be true. And then archaeology shows us, no, it is true. And God's word beyond a reasonable doubt is something that you can rely on and trust. So this is a, maybe a nice story. It's a strange story. But here's the big question is, what does any of that have to do with Christmas, right? I mean, this is like ancient history, and, and hopefully it's not been boring you, but, but what does that have to do with Christmas? And that brings us to that verse 14. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. The word virgin in the Old Testament could mean young woman or virgin. The word virgin in the New Testament can only mean a woman who's never had sex with a man. And so what we're seeing here is something that happened a lot with Old Testament prophecy. A lot of times a prophet would predict something that would happen a long time from now, thousands of years away, hundreds of years away. 
And that's what Isaiah does over and over again about the Messiah, about the Christ. He calls him the branch at one point. Another place he's described as the suffering servant, right? Where, where he says, by his stripes you will be healed and like a lamb led to the slaughter. So he opened not his mouth and he was despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And, and he bore our sins and took on our transgressions. And, and so he talks about what what the Messiah, what Christ will do in the future, but it's a long ways off. And so to prove that he's not just making it all up, he also talks about a prophecy that's fulfilled in the short term, right around the corner, maybe a few years away or so. And so he does that here where he's saying there's going to be a boy who's born and before he's, you know, two, three years old, before he knows right from wrong, um, these nations are going to be gone. But he's also looking forward to a time when the Messiah will come and be born of a virgin and he will literally be God with us, Emmanuel. He's called so many names in Isaiah, the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the mighty God, the prince of peace, of his government, there will be no end. And, and, and all of these awesome things that only God in the flesh could fulfill. And so Isaiah is pointing ahead to that, but also um, pointing a, a short-term prophecy so that they would believe that what he's saying about Christ in the future would also be true. And so the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That is a promise, Emmanuel, that I would say it's the jackpot promise in God's word. God with us. So when God says to Moses, I will be with you, what happens next is he has the greatest freeing of slaves in human history. He goes into Egypt and brings all of Israel out. Why? Because God gave the promise, I will be with you. Jacob, when he is uh, having uh, trouble with his brother Esau, and Esau wants to kill him, God says to Jacob, he promises, I will be with you. And what does that mean? It means he escapes Jacob. It, mean, it means he escapes Esau. And, and he goes on to be blessed and, and to, to, to just be prosperous and, and survive and go on and live. I will be with you. It's what God says to Joshua when he's filling Moses' shoes and he has nations all around him that want to kill them. He says, I will be with you. It is the jackpot promise. It means that, that everything that God desires for you is going to happen and, and he, he, he will support you and help you through whatever you have ahead. In fact, this promise, I will be with you, is the way Gabriel... Uh, greeted Mary, a teenage girl, uh, over 2,000 years ago. He says, greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And that doesn't mean, you know, God with us doesn't mean that we're not going to have any problems. You think about Mary, and so the Lord is with you, but she's an un unwed teenager, you know, maybe looked down on by others, and then, and then they are almost, you know, they have to flee for their lives to Egypt because of a wicked king trying to kill their baby and their refugees in Egypt. And there, I mean, there's so many difficult things. But the Lord is with her. And in the end, everything comes together and God does amazing, awesome things. And that's not just a promise that God set out there for Ahaz. It's not just a promise that God gave Mary. It's a promise that God gives every single one of us. When Jesus is 
is just about to be taken up into heaven and ascending up into heaven, just before he drops the mic, he says to his followers, he says, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And, and that is a promise for anyone who has asked Jesus to be their savior and is following him as their Lord. He will be with you. That's a powerful promise. And that's the promise you want. It's the jackpot promise of God's word. And I just want to just conclude with a couple of these questions. Where are you turning for rescue? Where are you turning for rescue? Because, you know, we can turn to all sorts of things. Um, some people turn to alcohol or drugs. Other people, maybe, maybe you think you can save yourself with your checkbook and you got a lot of money and you're going to try to, to spend your way or pay your way out of whatever bad situation you're in. Maybe you're leaning and relying on a certain individual and thinking, well, they're going to save me. They're going to help me. But I'm, I'm telling you, none of those things is what you need. What you need is God to be with you. You need to trust God and trust his plan. And if things are financially falling apart, you need to trust him. And, and the thing about waiting for rescue, the hard thing is the waiting part. Waiting the promise was made, but the waiting remained and the waiting reveals where our hope is found. And so this, this message he gives to Ahaz, he's saying, trust me. And Ahaz doesn't. But think about how hard it would have been for Ahaz to trust God. Because he's not saying, I'm going to fix your problem today. He's saying in three years, things will be much better. I, I've never been through a war, but it's awful. Three years of war? You're going to see your family die. You're going to see friends killed. You're going to see little children starving to death. Like three years to wait for God to do something? Ahaz thought, I can't wait that long. I'm, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to do what I can do. I'm going to disobey God because... Honestly, at the time, it seemed like the wise thing to do. I bet if he had advisors, they were saying, oh, this is so smart. Maybe the other surrounding nations thought, oh, Judah was so smart. Ahaz was so smart because he knew Assyria was an unstoppable rising power and he aligned himself with the right thing. Oh, what a, what a brilliant move. But it wasn't a brilliant move because he didn't trust God and ultimately it came to bite him because Assyria didn't just conquer his enemies they came right to his doorstep and they conquered almost conquered Judah as well and so so waiting we need to be willing to wait on God if if you're in a financial problem can you trust God even if it'll take 2 or 3 years of your house being foreclosed, of your electricity being shut off, of, of going into bankruptcy, of, of, of financial pain. Could you trust God even if it took that long? Maybe your marriage is in shambles. And can you trust God if it means two or three years from now, things will be better? Maybe you have a loved one who's a child, a brother, a friend, who's just going their own way and they're doing everything wrong and, and you think you have a plan and maybe lying will help or maybe doing this or something else against what God wants, you think will fix this. 
Can you wait and trust God and obey him for two or three years, even if nothing happens in those two years and it doesn't get better? There was a time in my life as a pastor, I've been a pastor now for over 25 years, and at one point or earlier in my, in my ministry, before I came to Bridgewater, I went through an awful time. Um, I, I, I was so stressed out. I was under so much pressure, and um, I was so unhappy. In fact, I, I didn't want to be a pastor. I, I just said, you know what? I, I just want to quit and do something else. But I knew that God wanted me to wait on him, to keep doing what I was doing, to keep pastoring, to keep teaching people, to keep loving people. And, and it went on for a little over two years and until finally there was a breakthrough. And actually, I, I was trying to find a, a job as a pastor in a different church and to have just a different kind of ministry than, than what I was having up until that point. And I applied at places in Newcastle, PA, and up in Michigan, and upstate New York. And, and, and it was always a no. And, and finally, on a Sunday night in, I think, August, I preached at a, a church in Montrose, PA called Bridgewater. And the waiting I had to go through and and the struggle it was all worth it because god had a plan and i just needed to trust him and i just want to really just beg you what what god was begging ahaz to do over 2700 years ago and that is to stand firm in your faith trust him with tomorrow and maybe it means more chemotherapy and and maybe it means financial difficulties and maybe it means uh, a, a Christmas that is just a little bit more stressful than you would like. But as long as you're obeying and trusting God, it's the right way to go. And his promise to you is Emmanuel. God is with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much that you're with us. Help us not to abandon you. Help us not to um, just... Help us to trust you no matter what. Lord, I don't know what everyone is going through. I know there's people here, things are wonderful. They're listening and they're, they're, they're just, their lives are great. And I just thank you for your blessings and your, your, your time of goodness like that in our lives. But I know that there are some that are going through very difficult, dark times and they've been holding on and, and they're at the end of their rope. And God, I just ask that you just tie a knot at the end of their rope and help them to hang on and hang on to their faith and trust in you and to do things your way and the right way and not try to take a shortcut in alcohol, not try to take a shortcut in, in a wrong relationship, not try to take a shortcut in anything else, but to trust you and follow you. And I just pray that you would bless us with your presence. Emmanuel, amen.